to me a very intimate piece of memoir that could in no way be fact-checked was just as valid as a piece of investigative journalism. That quote is from my guest today, Sierra Sky Gemma, and she's Room Magazine's contest coordinator. And the context of what she said about memoir came when she looked up the judge's interview for contests she was considering submitting and found that his remarks showed her the divide between what is seen as literary, the divide between what are men's stories traditionally and women's stories traditionally. And this experience really made her want to lift up women's stories. And Sierra does lift up women's stories. In this episode, we wade back into the can-lit dumpster fire as much as you can wade into fire. And Sierra shares how her life changed as a complainant in the UBC case that showed the dark parts of mentoring in Canada's literary institutions and how things have changed for her personally and for all of us in the past two years of the hashtag MeToo movement as a feminist online. Sierra also talks about how she has approached and written her own difficult stories, and she gives really pointed advice for writers of creative nonfiction, CNF, as we call it throughout the interview, and for writers who want to enter contests. This is Lit Mag Love. My name is Rachel Thompson, and I'm a writer and editorial collective member at Room. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art, and Feminism since 1975, and We Write, We Light, online courses and more to help you polish and publish your writing. Each episode of Lit Mag Love takes you behind the scenes at literary journals to give you insights on what's going on there, and I talk to writers and editors about their writing practice, delving into what they like in submissions, how journals work, and current trends and topics in the literary scene. As I mentioned, my guest in this episode is Sierra Sky Gemma, Room's contest coordinator, and she is a writer and journalist living in Vancouver. She has been published in The Globe and Mail, The New Quarterly, The Vancouver Sun, The Vancouver Observer, West Coast Families, Plenitude, Rhubarb, and the anthology Best Canadian Essays 2013. Sierra's work has won the Edna Stabler Personal Essay Contest, a National Magazine Award for Best New Magazine Writer, and a National Newspaper Award in Long Feature. During my conversation with Sierra, we had a few tech issues, so you might hear some slight pops and cracks during this recording, and we've been able to remove most of them, but our apologies if there are a few blurred or staticky words, and that work is done by our amazing sound engineer, Micah Lemiski. So it's my pleasure to welcome Sierra Sky Gemma to the Lit Mag Love podcast. Welcome, Sierra. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining me. And it's great to hear your voice. As I was saying, while we were getting started, that um, I haven't heard your voice before, even though we've been colleagues at Room for a while now. So can you tell me what your writing practice is like? Do you write every day or at certain times? Do you have any pre-writing rituals? I go very long periods without writing. And then I call it mind writing. It's not that I'm not writing during those periods. I'm just not using my fingers to write but I'll write in my head and tell myself stories and they become very like habitual going on over and over in my head. And then one day the time will come and like, I'll often be like, it's time, it's time. And then I run to my laptop and I get very manic and I will write until all that stuff that's been bubbling in my head for sometimes years just comes out. 
And so I'll stay up till 1 a.m. and then I'll sleep, but I'll wake up really early because again, like it's a fire in my mind. And then I'll go back to typing and I'll just keep on typing till it's all out. And no one's allowed to talk to me. My family is well aware. My son, like during those times, he might be like, what's for dinner? And they're like, figure it out yourself. I'm writing. Don't talk to me. But everybody knows about my crazy writing brain. So they leave me to it. I don't really believe in that whole, uh, you have to write every day to be a writer thing. I think everybody has their own process and mine is mind writing. Um, And then other people do drafts and they'll just do draft after draft after draft. But I've done that work in my head. So usually when I write, I don't do a lot of editing. I obviously do some editing and I'll get feedback from other writers, but the level of editing I'm doing is just doesn't sound like the same as other people who do many, many drafts. I love what you say about mind writing because it also ties in with what one of my mentors, Betsy Warland, says about revising work. And she talks about these three stages of inscription. And one of them is this really mental stage that can take years. So it seems like years is more polished by the time you actually sit down and get it out. But it's also kind of affirming because I think sometimes writers feel like I'm not writing every day and there's this guilt that comes with that. And it's like, no, you're actually (laughs) mind writing. You're thinking about writing. You're, You're writing. It's a part of writing is this reflection for sure. Yeah. And I used to have a lot of anxiety about my writing process. It's filled with a lot of cycles of self-doubt. And there is that guilt and I'll think like, oh, I haven't written in so long. And then I'll go through that manic phase of writing and then polishing and sending work out. And then there's such a delay between writing and getting responses or getting something published that I just start thinking, am I even a writer? (laughs) Should I just stop writing? I mean, I'm not writing. So how can I call myself a writer? I'm just waiting. And the longer that process takes, the more I'm sure I'm a horrible writer. And then all of a sudden I'll, you know, get an acceptance. And then the cycle starts again. I'll note that you say this as someone who's won contests for your CNF. It's like so many writers, I guess, struggle with that feeling of, am I a writer or not? And I know that you also write from a difficult place sometimes, or you write about difficult experiences like childhood sexual abuse, addiction, and more family secrets. How do you write these difficult stories? And are there stories that you've ever walked away from that felt too difficult to write? Yeah, actually, my first piece of fiction, actually my only piece of fiction that's ever been published, (laughs) was pretty much a CNF story about a time that someone was really seriously hurt. I can't be sure they lived, and I knew who had done it, and I never said anything. I was very young when it happened. I mean, not like a child, but probably like 21 or 20. And that was a story that seemed crazy because it also happened in the parking lot of a strip club. So it had all these details that were ripe for a published story, especially CNF, because sometimes stories are not really, they don't seem that remarkable when they're fiction, but when you know they actually happened, it's suddenly like, whoa, that happened? (laughs) So I think CNF stories have the ability to be really powerful. And obviously I wanted to write that story exactly as it happened, but I just couldn't. I tried for probably about seven years. And then one day it just hit me. I don't have to write it as CNF. I can write it as fiction. 
And so I did. And it made it easier for me to write, even though I was still kind of writing my own story. But obviously, that's like, that's an exception. The vast majority of my work is difficult CNF that I've written as difficult CNF. And I don't know exactly how it works that I can be able to write about that. Being asked that question makes me think about just going through the healing process for childhood sexual abuse and how I carried around those stories as shame for much of my life. And after years of therapy, I realized like that's not my shame to carry around. Like if anyone is going to be embarrassed or ashamed of the stories, it's going to be the perpetrator. It shouldn't be me. It wasn't my fault. And so I started talking about those stories to my friends and family. And every time I told one of those stories, it became easier and easier to tell until it really just, it really doesn't hurt me anymore to tell those stories. And so that's probably why I can write about them now is I've been through that healing process. I mean, it's not like a healing process has some sort of end point, but I'm definitely past the point where where I relive it when I write it. I guess I hear from a lot of writers who are still reliving it and finding it challenging. I wonder if when you're writing, do you sometimes think about who you're writing to or who like people who need to hear those stories? I think I'm writing for myself, honestly. I think it's become a beneficial coincidence that I'm also writing for other people. I've certainly had a lot of people reach out to me after they've read some of my more widely published stories and told me how thankful they were to um, read somebody who was writing about this kind of stuff. But I think in the beginning, I just had that absolute drive to write. And I don't even know how it came out as nonfiction. I guess I just am lucky that I have so many weird stories. <laughs> Otherwise, I probably would have been a fiction writer. I definitely always wanted to be a writer. When I was a kid, I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot of stories. And when I was working on my thesis, I found an old portfolio of writing from when I was 16 or 17. And I found stories that were kind of stuck between other stories, like hidden in the pages. And I realized that I was writing creative nonfiction disguised as fiction for a really, really long time. You mentioned your thesis. And so you did your MFA at a university program. This is a question like from me as the writer thinking about how you navigate a workshop where the stakes are different when you're someone who is writing about these events in your life, these difficult stories. And how did you handle that when people don't come in with the same stakes? Like, how was that? I primarily took nonfiction courses. So I was lucky enough to mostly be working with other nonfiction writers. Um, Not all of them were nonfiction writers. They were just sampling the genre. But a lot of them were. And I felt a lot of support, especially in my first year doing the MFA and working in nonfiction. And I think that support kind of came through in the fact that I, I think I published everything from that first year. Whereas later, I definitely was working with people who I felt like didn't get 
my writing, which is such a ridiculous, cliched thing that I think a lot of not that great writers say. <laughs> but uh, I was like in a situation where I wasn't connecting with my classmates in the same way, in the perfect way that can happen in a great workshop. And I never published anything from that year. I gave up on a lot of pieces from that year, even pieces I worked really hard on. Like I worked on a piece that I went and spent 10 days in California researching. And then I just didn't feel like the feedback I got really worked for that particular piece. It can be hard for sure. And it it also depends on like the point of view of people who are coming to your work. I mean, and sometimes it's really great to get the point of view of somebody who's not what you would call like your reader, you know, your typical reader. That can be really great for like uncovering like little things that you think are obvious that are not obvious at all. But I do think that a lot of my work is geared towards other survivors of sexual assault or other people from dysfunctional families. Before I was really getting deep into nonfiction, I read Augustine Burroughs' Running with Scissors. And up until that point, I had all these wild stories, but I felt like I couldn't tell them because I thought I was an unbelievable character. Then I read Augustine Burroughs' book, which is just a totally out there memoir that seems impossible, but because of the life I've led, I looked at that and I thought, oh, I get it. It can be done. I can tell my stories. So that was kind of a major change in my writing life. I actually got a book signed by Augustine Burroughs a few years back at one of the AWP conferences at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs conference. And I totally froze in line because his writing is very inspirational to me. And I kept getting closer in line and I was feeling choked up. And I wanted to say something about the impact his writing had had on me. And then I got up and it was like, I was just totally tongue-tied. I gave him the book to sign. He kind of tried to make chit-chat, but I was like (laughs) (laughs) non-responsive. Just as like my time was up and I was feeling all this pressure, like I have to say something now. I have to say something now. This is my only chance. I just like yelled, kind of shouted in his face in a very abrupt way. Your writing made me think I could write. I actually startled him. Like he was scared by my (laughs) shouting all of a sudden when I hadn't spoken a single word. And he was so lovely and gracious about it. But anyway. Oh, I love that. So I'm going to change gears and talk about being online and female and feminist in public. Because I guess like many women, I really fear reprisals for being those things in public. And I'm also really aware of colleagues, including yourself, to have been maybe more outspoken online at times, and in particular women of color who get a lot of hurtful backlash. But I'm wondering what kind of power online trolls can have over you when you write such personal CNF that's publicly available? Like, it's not like they can dig up any hidden secrets. Yeah, there's no secrets because it's already out. Um, (laughs) Online trolls have been a major factor in my life for the past three years. I am a complainant in the UBC investigation of former creative writing chair, Stephen Galloway. 
and I was asked to testify, and I said yes. And I was asked to testify because the main complainant in the case had reported to me two years previously about unwelcome sexual harassment. And, you know, when you're a woman writer, uh, this is not unusual topic for conversation. And I just said, you know, uh, keep your head down, do your thesis and get out as soon as possible. But other than that, I did not take it as seriously as I should. I didn't think about exactly what she had told me and what that might mean for other women. I knew. So because of that conversation, I was asked to come in. And it's been, well, my life has never been the same since I made that decision um, to talk about what had happened. And obviously, it got much, much, much worse after the UBC Accountable letter was published. And also after Madeline Tian wrote her letter. So I was singled out for attack. Uh, I shouldn't say singled out because there were a few of us. So, you know, tripled out for attack, along with obviously the main complainant, Chelsea Rooney, who had also testified. And the UBC Accountable letter and Madeline Tian's letter, they galvanized men's rights activists that were active in Canada. And one in particular had written extensively about the Gian Gomeshi case. And she, yes, men's rights activists can be women. Uh, This woman decided to do a series on the innocence of Stephen Galloway. And to be clear, I have not watched the videos. I have only had people who are close to me watch the videos and talk to me about it because I'm just way too sensitive. But from the things that I've been told, she reported a lot of lies, but there were nuggets of truth in there that made me feel like these were deliberate lies. They weren't accidental. Like clearly someone had told her this information. Someone had lied to this woman and now she made a series of YouTube videos that were being watched by thousands of MRAs. Oh, God. I had to completely privatize all of my social media and I had to block a lot of stuff because there were death threats against me specifically. And um, one of the things that's really scary as a creative nonfiction writer is you regularly write about your family. So I've written a lot about my son. And when of the comments, there's a couple of comments that have stuck in my head that uh, online trolls have made about me. And one was that butch bitch needs a bullet in her head. And the other one was her son is probably going to grow up to kill prostitutes or women that look like her. And that's kind of when I lost it. Normally, I feel like I have a really good self-care mechanism for dealing with online hate, and that is I just block immediately. Other writers who try to engage with people like this, 
I just don't think it's wise. You're not changing any minds to me. There are people in this world who are sadly filled with hate and I don't know what to do about them, but they, you know, they're dangerous people and they commit crimes all the time against innocent people. And I feel like the best thing to do is just to not engage. I have done so much blocking on my social media and I have quite, you know, a nice little support system on social media. Like it doesn't have to be a scary place if you take steps to ensure your own safety by making your accounts private and selectively allowing followers and blocking people immediately if they start using hateful speech. It's really scary to be a feminist online right now, but it's also a time for more support than I ever knew was possible. I think back to what the complainants went through, especially in the two years after the start of the UBC Galloway investigation. And I just don't think it would be like that now. The world has changed so much in the past year and there's so much more support for women experiencing sexual harassment or sexual abuse. Survivors of all kinds of abuse are getting support like they just never have before. So I think it's a different world. And when we were in the thick of it and when the letter had just come out, obviously I cried a lot in the beginning, but then I was filled with so much like hope because I wasn't thinking short term. I wasn't thinking about my immediate pain. I was thinking long term. And I, I knew, I felt so confident that one day feminist literary scholars of the future would look back to how the women have stood up to power at universities in this time. And this would be considered the beginning. I hope anyways, that this is the beginning. And I think also with everything that's come out, about Concordia. I feel like it's a new age. Speaking of that stuff about Concordia, in November, I had helped collect stories from women who had been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted by men in the Canadian publishing industry. It was a very, very difficult thing to be a part of because I received so, so many stories of assault. And the same names came up again and again. And it was so upsetting to see that happen. You know, and I know that was a scary time for a lot of men writers in Canada because there was this kind of sense that, like, could I be accused without proof? But if you had seen these, these letters, like, no, it was the same guys over and over again. I don't think men writers who have nothing to fear have anything to fear. There's this kind of sense, I think, being put out there from the right that it's like innocent men could be easily accused. Yeah. And that's not going to happen. It's these guys that are repeat offenders that are finally being called out and women are finally being believed. Lit Mag Love is brought to you by Room Magazine, literature, art, and feminism since 1975. Room's fiction and poetry contests are now open, and the first prize is $1,000 and publication in Room. The contest judges this year for fiction is Zoe Whittall, and for poetry is Vivek Shreya. 
You can find out more about entering the contest at roommagazine.com slash contest. Lit Mag Love is also presented by my project, We Write, We Light, which are online courses, including the upcoming Lit Mag Love course. Yes, same name, different thing. And this course is a five-week course to help you get smart, fearless, and published. If you want to find out more about that course, you can at litmaglove.com. I'm back with Sierra Sky Gemma, and we're going to be talking about contests now because she's the contest coordinator for Room Magazine. And I wanted to start by asking you about something that actually really impacted how I started thinking about the work that I've been doing with writers, the mentoring I do with writers. Because I read an interview where you were talking about a contest judge who didn't want to see personal stories. And I felt like you really explained very clearly how that actually was code for I don't really want to see women's writing. Can you talk a bit more about what that contest judge taught you at that time? Oh, boy, that was eye-opening because I just never thought that there was sexism in CNF. It just didn't occur to me that it was segregated and that there was like women's creative nonfiction and men's creative nonfiction. And when I read that interview, I, I realized that it was like that. And it made me think more about how men's creative nonfiction is usually investigative journalism or literary journalism or biography, history-based creative nonfiction. And then women's uh, nonfiction is usually a memoir personal essays regularly. And to me, there wasn't a real difference between the validity of those subgenres of creative nonfiction. But when I read that interview, I realized that not everyone thought the same as I did. To me, a very intimate piece of memoir that could in no way be fact-checked was just as valid as in piece of investigative journalism. So it kind of did change something in that it made me want to lift up women's stories however I could. And I do think that I tend to share women's writing online probably more than I do men's as a way to kind of combat that. As you're reading the submissions that come into rooms contests, are there obvious tears at first glance? Is there a piece that isn't going to make it or one that's definitely going to make the short list? Or do you find that the judges, because we change judges with each contest, do they surprise you with their choices? So the first part of that, are there obvious tears? Absolutely. I think there's this mistaken belief that creative nonfiction just needs an amazing story to tell to be good. And that's simply not true. I've read a lot of amazing stories that were not well-written. A lot of beginning creative nonfiction writers tend to tell stories in almost like an oral format where they'll say, you know, this happened and this happened and then this is what I felt about it and then after that, this happened. And that just isn't enjoyable to read on the page. So you can clearly see the difference between very new writers who are probably submitting for the first time, and polished writers. I do think that the other trap that emerging writers fall into when it comes to creative nonfiction 
is they think that their feelings are enough to make a story. And that is also not true. Your feelings may be very profound, but you also need some sort of plot (laughs) to carry those feelings so the reader knows how to identify with those feelings. Those two things set apart more advanced creative nonfiction from more beginning creative nonfiction. Just thinking about what are the qualities of a piece that is suited for a contest rather than general submissions, because I think a lot of times writers aren't sure. And I remember reading in an interview that you did with a contest that you had won, where you had been guided by mentors that this one's a contest entry. So do you have advice now to help people kind of sort out which ones are more suited to contests versus general submissions? You have to have a very unique story or a unique perspective or a very unique voice. You have to have something that sets your story apart. Ideally, you want all of those things (laughs) together at once. So for example, I was first reader for PRISM CNF contests for many years. So we would come up with a long list and we would pass that on to the judge to read the long list. And I remember one year there were two stories about having a child with autism. So it is a fairly unique story, but at that point you have two people with that story. So, you know, we were not going to pass on two stories about having a child with autism to the judge. We had to pick one and you're picking the quote unquote best one, but both were well-written. So we went with the one that had a very unique perspective. And that was a woman who talked more about the struggles of having a child in terms of having kind of non-traditional or the unexpected feelings that go along with motherhood that I think are there probably for most mothers, but we're told to never talk about them. Like those times where you're frustrated with your child and you you fantasize about what if you had never had a child or something like that. I do think most mothers experience that, but very few talk about them. So, you know, in that situation, unique story, very well written, unique voice, but then also very unique perspective. The vulnerability of saying the thing that we're not allowed to say as parents too. Is that part of it? Yeah, I think a lot of nonfiction writers kind of hold back. The ones that are able to go to the darkest part of themselves Those are the creative nonfiction writers that I think really stand out. That fearlessness brings a certain reward for the reader and then also for the writer. Actually, I'm going to connect this to an anecdote you told in another interview about gaming a contest early on in life where you were writing really angsty poetry, submitted and didn't play the contest. But then you got to know the judge, you know, you did your homework, your research, and we're like, oh, these readers are parents. And so I'm going to write about this lovely family story about a parent-child bond. The question in here maybe is, is this a good approach? Maybe to win those kind of contests, but maybe not literary journal contests. Going back to earlier when I was talking about that contest judge who talked about personal stories in a kind of a negative way. That was me doing my research. I was going to submit to that contest and I read the judges interview and I thought, nope, this is not for me. And I didn't submit. So I think that it's very wise advice to always read the interview with the judge and then, you know, Google that judge and they may have been judges at other contests, read those interviews or anything you can get on how that judge approaches reading. 
because I do think that judges can surprise you and choose pieces that you might not think that they will. I don't think that reading everything that that judge has written is necessarily the best approach in terms of kind of getting an idea of what that judge likes to read, but definitely reading interviews can help. Yeah, I'm, I always look into the judge. And, you know, when I consider contests, obviously I'm thinking about a lot of different things. I'm thinking about how popular the contest is because the more popular it is, the more competition, usually. There are some contests in Canada that don't get really high submissions but are extremely hard to win. For example, events, nonfiction contests. If you read their shortlists, there are always phenomenal writers on the shortlist. So I've only submitted to events once. I think it's too competitive. But um, I think about the reputation of the magazine. And then I think about who's judging because that's going to have a big impact on me as well. I tend to go towards women judges just because for the kind of writing I do, I don't know how well that's going to resonate with a man who hasn't had those kinds of experiences. And not to say men don't have experiences like I've had, but I think I do kind of write about experiences that usually are more relatable for other women. I should mention that your research paid off too in that, in that case in the high school poetry contest because you won that competition too. Yeah, I, I think my research has paid off. I am a big proponent of contests. I understand that they're expensive and I'm on a limited budget as well, but I select very carefully and I try to submit, you know, my very best work that seems like the best match for the magazine and the judge. Actually, that's a good transition to you speaking about limited resources too, because I also read you once said, that editing and managing a literary magazine is not a career for the lazy or the extravagant. And that the greatest <laughs> challenge to being an editor of a lit mag or a writer is money. So what so, keeps you going at it first at Room and then before then at, at Prism too? I imagine it's been challenging with having a family and managing all that. It's been extremely challenging. I, I don't know how I have done it for as long as I have. I'm always amazed by other volunteers or employees of literary magazines. They work so incredibly hard. Most employees of literary magazines are paid 10 hours a week or maybe 20 if they're extremely lucky. Very few are paid for full-time work, but they regularly do like double the number of hours that they're paid for. And it's out of love. You know, literary magazines have changed my life at least my writing life. The New Quarterly was the first literary magazine to publish me. And the opportunities I received as a result of that publication, they literally changed my life. And I want to help other writers through the gates, <laughs> through the literary gates, if I can. So that's kind of what propels me and what keeps me working for these seriously underfunded magazines. Lit Mag Love, you know? Yeah, I'm loving this and thinking this is a great place to end is on the real Lit Mag Love. I think, yeah, that's what sort of prompts everything that I'm doing around the Lit Mag Love stuff too, is that feeling like there are these people who, like yourself who are these gate openers actually out there and I want to kind of identify that and bolster that so people can have those gates open for them too. I want to thank my guest, Sierra Sky Gemma, for all of the wisdom that she shared with us today about creative nonfiction, about 
contest for writers about being a public woman online in the center of a controversy and how she handled that. That's all very inspiring stuff. And in terms of the creative nonfiction, I think she shared some quite insightful thoughts about the difference between emerging and established writers and how they approach nonfiction. So she said, I think that there's this mistaken belief that creative nonfiction just needs this amazing story to tell to be good. And that's simply not true. A lot of beginning creative nonfiction writers tend to tell stories in almost an oral format, where it's then this happened, then this happened, and so on and so forth. But that's just not enjoyable to read on the page, as she puts it. So you can clearly see the difference when she's looking at contest submissions between very new writers and polished writers. And another trap that she says that emerging writers fall into when it comes to nonfiction is they think that their feelings are enough to make a story. And that is also not true. Your feelings may be profound, but you also need some sort of plot to carry those feelings so the reader knows how to identify with those feelings. So those two things, as she puts it, set aside more advanced creative nonfiction for more beginning creative nonfiction. When it comes to entering contests, she has a couple of strategies. The first is to read the interview with the contest judge and really research the contest that you're entering into. But then another is to check in and decide, is this a contest-worthy submission? Is this a submission that fits for a contest? And for that, it really needs to be unique in a few different levels, as she put it. It needs to have a unique perspective. It has to be a unique story. And really, you have to be able to dig deep, go to the dark side, be able to explore the dark side in yourself, in particular when you're writing nonfiction, but in your writing in general for anybody entering a contest. As Sierra said, a lot of nonfiction writers hold back, and the ones that are able to go to the darkest part of themselves, those are the creative nonfiction writers that stand out. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art, and Feminism since 1975, and We Write, We Light, online courses and more to help you polish and publish your writing. Sound editing for this episode is done by Micah Lemiski. She's the host of Fainting Couch Feminists, also presented by Room. You can find out more about the Lit Mag Love podcast online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter or Instagram at litmaglove. Thank you for listening.